Baltimoreans is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find, find more podcasts like this at baltimoresportsreport.com. You're listening to Baltimoreans, baseball things considered. My name is Sam Dingman. This is Alan Smith. Let's get stupid. Baltimoreans. Hello, Baltimoreans. How are y'all doing? We are coming at you here on Democracy Day in mm. America. Mm. The uh, Iowa caucuses are happening literally as we speak to you, uh, and Sam and I are anxious to complete this recording so we can go watch returns that mean almost nothing to anybody. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Uh, I would say, as we have alluded to uh, in previous editions of the program, we are a divided house Mm. when it comes to the, well, actually, both the Democratic and Republican fields. That's true. For president. I'm a Trump man. We, um, I didn't know that. (laughs) Hold on. Stop everything. No, how how could you even say that jokingly? I'm so angry at you. Because Donald Trump, were he to become the nominee of a major party... And we're off. ...will drive a wedge between the conservative business-minded Republican Party and the evangelical hate-filled right... And the RNC as we know it will collapse. Thereby leading to a uh, Martin O'Malley victory <laughs> in November. Just picking up the pieces at this point. It's that kind of year, folks. <laughs> it's that kind of year. Well, speaking of picking up the pieces. Yep. Tonight, we are going to speak to Ben Mastin, our dear friend and frequent contributor to the program, because we've been doing our share of hand-wringing about the Orioles and America in general, mm-hmm. as is our want. Is it want or won't? I never know. Want. Okay. We've been doing our share of hand-wringing as we always do, but there is actually, as Ben will tell us, a lot of reason to look at the Yankees a little bit differently this offseason than we have previously. So we will check in with him about that. But first... Here we are, episode 135, Baltimoreans. And 135 is an interesting number because recently um, the Mets Twitter feed put out a fairly... To my eye, innocuous tweet. It was a couple weeks ago. They tweeted, pitchers and catchers are only one month away. If you then went to the at Mets Twitter account and looked into their replies, you would have seen 135 uses of the word fuck directed at the Mets before you saw one positive tweet. And this sort of struck me. Because, of course, we should, say, that, we should say this was before Jonas Espedes had at, re-signed at, with the team. Exactly. At that moment, um, many Mets fans were um, irate at the notion that uh, the Mets team would let both Daniel Murphy and Jonas Espedes leave and go to the Nationals in one fell swoop. Um, it turned out not to happen. But it struck me that the rage that was uh, visible on Twitter in that moment and the sort of just uh, a tidal wave of vitriol that was directed at the Mets organization for something as dastardly as saying, oh boy, it's baseball season again, uh, is a very good moniker of our current political moment, which is to say we are very angry. Uh, we are very angry from the right at women and minorities And we're very angry from the left at capitalists and bankers. And 
it's really interesting to think about the political campaign eight or nine months ago and how much anger has completely shifted how we're thinking about politics right now. Because anger has made, I think, two candidates who have very little in common. I mean, I sort of am angry at this constant notion that like Trump and Sanders are the same, but for different sides. But they do share one very important thing, which is that their followers are mostly very upset um, at the status quo. And I think that this is going to be an anger election. And it seems to me to be an anger moment in sports because I know that Twitter is always a bad place and that the internet is always filled with trolls. But it just struck me here on episode 135 that that particular tidal wave of anger was just over the top. And then I was on the subway today and I was uh, minding my own business and a pregnant woman got on the subway and she got on and she looked, made eye contact with the first gentleman that she saw sitting down and said, very obviously pregnant, very clearly pregnant, and said, could I have that seat? And the guy sort of like rolled his eyes and huffed got up but sort of made a production of it and they started a conversation which eventually led to him holding forth loudly to the entire car about how um, women shouldn't be in the workplace and maybe she shouldn't even be on the subway when she was pregnant and women had taken his job he had been employed for 14 years and da 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 da. a lot of anger you would have thought that ted cruz would be in iowa today (laughs) Well, it was a very Trumpian response. I mean, it was a very like he used this very small um, sort of innocuous thing and ended up sort of talking about how, well, he it's America. So he was allowed to say his piece and his piece is that, you know, uh, women have taken too much and that the white male, which he was, has become an oppressed class and It was very interesting to have that happen on the day of the Iowa caucuses in New York, not famous for being a a Trump um, stronghold. I I think we like him less than anybody else. And we we made him. (laughs) Yeah, and and he's our fault. Um, But that sort of moment of anger struck me as uh, very emblematic of a lot of the political discussion. And uh, I just thought that that was an interesting, uh, you know. The woman got off the train, and I actually ended up engaging with this guy for a while. And oh, it, <laughs> oh sweet, sweet Alan Smith! <laughs> it came from, I think, a legitimate place of fear, which is where I think a lot of Trump support comes from, about losing ground in a way that you know this guy who grew up in the 1960s and 50s and 60s uh, had a certain version of what America was and this doesn't look like America to him and he feels like he's losing ground there. He put it out in the world in a pretty terrible and obnoxious and sexist way but the fear and the anger that were there I could at least understand. Sure. There is, I think, a a weak but palpable baseball connection here Yeah. to the point that you were making about the Mets earlier because Mm -hmm. I think to attempt to infer meaning from a series of kind of bandwagony tweets, it seems like a lot of what Mets fans were upset about with regard to this supposedly innocuous tweet that became a channel for their outpouring of anger and resentment. It seems like a lot of what they were upset about was the idea that after so many years of wandering in the wilderness and so many years of being told that there was a plan 
and that the system was working. They just needed to give it time and that the wrongs of the past were going to be righted. A bunch of broken campaign promises, basically. Mm -hmm. Last year, they finally got what they have been waiting for. And it now seemed like at a moment when the regime was about to change, all of that progress was going to be undone because, in fact, their faith in this system was completely misplaced. Mm -hmm. And that does seem to be something that is rampant. And it points at a little bit of a larger question, I think, which is why do we assume the benevolence of the system in the first place? Mm. Well, I don't think anyone does. I mean, I think that's where all the anger comes from. I think that in the past, um, a larger percentage of Americans, when asked, would say that they sort of fundamentally at least vaguely trusted their government. Um, They might not like where it was going, they might want it to be bigger or smaller than it was, but they didn't feel like necessarily that it was totally broken. And I feel like in this time and place, the uh, combination of money's influence on the political spectrum and media's sort of changing of what we considered to be the political debate and sort of the constant aggressive way the failures of our political class are shown to us, I think that confidence in those people to be anything other than sort of self-interested shitheads is at an all-time low. Um, Not to say that, like, this is the worst that government's ever been, but I think that particularly our relationship to our own government is is, is at a nadir I would posit that that has had far-reaching effects on our ability to trust authority overall as a generation. Mm. I think the millennial generation is very not interested in um, buying into institutions. We're not buying interested in buying into bureaucracy. And we generally assume that people in power are going to make bad decisions. Um, and I think that that is evidenced even down to the level of people being furious that they were going to let Cespedes signed for the different team, and then, lo and behold, people being furious that they'd re-signed Cespedes. Yeah, <laughs> and and I would like to make one other connection here. Possibly I... the same people. It's hard to say. <laughs> well, I think there are some people who like sports because it's a nice outlet for boiling anger, and that's <laughs> probably ultimately a good thing. Yeah, I guess that's better than that's why you know you have to have the NFL so those people have something to hit. Yeah. Uh, but I think there's one there's one other connection here that I'd like to make before we get into our conversation with Ben, which is I think there is also something of an explanation here in the recent rabid ardor for true crime narratives. Because oh, that's interesting. Most of the true crime narratives, whether it's making a murderer or serial or there's about to be this 10-part miniseries called The People vs. O.J. Simpson on FX that seems like it's going to reverberate pretty significantly in the culture. Um, I think a big reason for the fact that these stories are being are having so much success right now is because all of them, at some level, are about the idea that the official narrative cannot be trusted. Mm-hmm. And that we as a people need to be less easily convinced by a compelling narrative. And so I think what we're seeing is a very forceful pushback against systems that have so reliably 
fed us an incorrect narrative over time and have decided, you know, we're not gonna take it. (laughs) Yeah. And one of the things that I find really fascinating about that is that you look at the story of Making a Murderer, Mm. which is basically a very forceful argument that this guy that was found guilty of homicide and is now sitting in jail and seems, if you buy the logic of the movie, to have been framed was wrongfully convicted. Mm -hmm. Then you look at the O.J. Simpson trial, which, if you remember, was a situation where at the time... It was there was a lot of energy in the popular culture in support of the idea that OJ had been framed, where when you look back at the facts of the case, it's extraordinarily unlikely that the cops framed OJ Simpson and Mm. way more likely that he committed these incredibly heinous murders. Simpson is actually a very interesting um, comp to Cosby because there are still people in the black community who are willing to defend Cosby despite all of the evidence against him, I think along slightly sexist lines for a willingness to say, like, this is society trying to tear down a strong black man, even if all of the evidence is against it. And I think that the moment of the O.J. Simpson trial when it was happening was one of the most like polarizing racial moments in American like it was in, very in, shortly in, after the Rodney in the King decades, beings in decades. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was just a moment of like like black folks rallying around an icon even though <laughs> there is no evidence to suggest that he was anything other than someone. And now it's really interesting to tie it back to something we talk about a lot on this show. Um, now he, he Simpson is, um, exhibiting a lot of the, the signs of CTE, which is the brain condition of people who have been hit in the head too much, um, which is another fascinating (laughs) subplot in the ongoing saga of a, of a very sort of sad story about a human being. Yeah. And, and of course there's a whole conversation to be had there about whether he's, actually suffering from those conditions or whether sure. he knows that that is a compelling narrative for him to make as he continues to look to exonerate himself in the public eye. So, the Orioles. Eh? <laughs> Not a whole lot has happened since last we spoke, friends. And I think that certainly is part of the reason that we thought it would be interesting to chat with Ben about what has been going on in the other corners of the American League East on the episode tonight. But the story continues to be the same as it was last week. Who pitching? Who pitching? <laughs> as we get closer to spring training, it seems less and less likely that we're going to act on the urgency of the moment. Yeah. And do something to improve the rotation. Nothing to say about our pitching staff that hasn't already been said about Afghanistan. <laughs> <laughs> or Donald Trump supporters. <laughs> Let's talk to Ben. All right. All right, Ben Mastin, welcome to Baltimoreans on election night in America. Oh my God, Baltimoreans, the Baltimoreans. I I knew such a show once, and it. It vanished like like a beautiful dream. <laughs> all right, all right. I uh, come closer, come closer. Let me touch your face. We, we hear it enough on Twitter. <laughs> God damn it, Mastin. We don't need it from you too. 
Oh my goodness. Oh. You you feel stupid. <laughs> <laughs> it could it be? All right. All right. We deserve all of this. <laughs> well, anyway, hi. <laughs> Benjamin, um, what would you say is the the state of of political play in the great state of Texas? Uh, In the great state of Texas, people are mainly uh, hanging out and doing laundry and will probably check the newspaper tomorrow. (laughs) That sounds actually quite healthy. Yeah, that's well, for, um, that's for, nice. For Texas, sure. Yeah. Even I mean, though even though your um um favored son Teddy C is uh <laughs> is 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 liable to finish a close second? Oh my goodness. Listen, I didn't for one thing, I am not healthy. I will be as soon as I'm off the phone with you guys, I will be turning on the news and biting my nails and wondering if human civilization is about to decay. That's but, that, that's know. pretty much the plan up here too. <laughs> Cool. Can cool. I just not say, to date ourselves for the audience, but you know. Well, can I just say? Oh, are you yeah, suggesting audience. that this won't come out until much, much <laughs> after tonight? I'm, what you, mm. It's amazing. The audience is so much more knowledgeable than us. They live in they live in the future in this they world. They live in, in the which, future, yeah. Which they have all of the knowledge that we could only dream about. Speaking of of um, the unknown unknowns and and prognosticating to the future. Do you yeah. think that this year's Yankees bullpen will be the best bullpen of all time or merely the best bullpen of the last 50 years? Oh, my God. I mean, well, first of all, everybody should acknowledge this is the Royals' fault. This is, <laughs> this is them setting the precedent with their horrible three-headed beast at the back end of their bullpen. Yeah, and, and just punting on starting pitching. Yeah, and I mean, like, so are the Yankees, because, I mean, you know, our our rotation, I think, will be fine, but there's, and if you detect maybe some qualified optimism there, yeah. <laughs> that's possible. Well, listen, you know, uh, I have to say, I never thought I would say this, but I kind of wish the Orioles would take a page out of the Yankees' playbook on this one, because if you're not going to upgrade your rotation, <laughs> you, you might bet. as well shore up the old bullpen. <laughs> Well, I mean, the so. Yankees, the Yankees, for one thing, so so since we're actually talking about about baseball now. Don't worry, like, it won't last. I'm sure, it, I'm sure it won't. But um, real quick, let's just consider the Yankees' rotation, right? I mean, it's not it won't terrible. Take, it won't take longer than real quick. <laughs> it won't take longer than real quick. It's not terrible, but there's many, many question marks, you know. So, you know, at this point... Masahiro Tanaka, we're aware that he's a very good pitcher, but probably not the second coming of Jesus Christ. Um, probably. In all likelihood. You know, <laughs> he's, he's, he's a mortal man. He, he can be beaten. Um, his his you know. splitter may technically be a saint, however. <laughs> sure, except that <laughs> or the, at least fastball, a minor the fastball is less of that. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> You know, I mean, he's he's good and he's great unless he gets behind him counts and then he becomes less great. Um, or unless he's facing Jonathan Scope. Oh well, that uh, that's beyond the scope of my abilities to predict. <laughs> so <laughs> please cut that joke out of the show. Oh no, no it we, got the ding. We literally can't now because the uh, the bleed of the bell will make it so that we have to use it. Oh God, thank God I earned a ding. Well, anyway, um, so Tanaka, so there's Tanaka. C.C. Sebastia, at this point, who knows? <laughs> I mean, yeah, who knows? I, I hope he gets the help he needs, and beyond that, I can't prognosticate, and neither can anyone else. 
Ivanova probably becoming more of a long reliever slash swingman. Uh, Luis Severino potentially very good, uh, a little untested, uh, high ceiling, etc. I mean, you guys have had your share of dudes like that in your rotation over the years. Yeah, Severino, uh, I would say, kind of occupies the the Kevin Gosman slot. Uh, for the Yankees, where could yep. be could be the savior of the season and could be just trade a vital bait cog. by June, <laughs> yeah, I, or trade bait by June, yeah, yeah. And uh, Michael Pineda, capable of being very good or very not, uh, basically becoming the latter day AJ Burnett in that regard. <laughs> mm, that's a pretty good comp, actually. I like that, isn't it? I mean, he's really good, except when he isn't. Yeah, and that's you know, and there you go. Um, and, and and both of them look like slightly more goofy in their motion than you expect to work out. Yes, that's also true. That's also true. <laughs> and uh, and Nathan Evaldi, who, you know, I mean, who solid knows? Pitcher. He got so much re- solid pitcher, but not remarkable. He just gets tons of run support, or at least he did in 2015. But it almost doesn't matter because he still allows runs. <laughs> <laughs> huh. So anyway, we'll we'll see what we'll see. But the the this is all a very roundabout way of saying that the Yankees, for a change, are actually in sort of a transitional phase. And it actually brings me a tremendous amount of pleasure to be able to say that, uh, because that's new, mm-hmm. you know? Sure. And now, you know, is, they, don't, is that because, they don't usually wait around. Is that because you feel comfortable having slightly decreased expectations for once? Do you think, I mean, that, is that going to lower your overall blood pressure? Um, mine personally, who knows, but I mean, <laughs> well, you're, you're a special case, my friend, but <laughs> I think the Yankees for a change are like, you know what? We're a pretty good team. We're competitive. We got some question marks, but so does everybody else. We like our chances, but we're not expecting to win a championship for another year or two. Well, this, this and, brings me and to, that is, that is such like a mind blowing thing. Yeah. Yeah. For, for that, that's a very different vibe for that organization to be giving off. So. Well, this brings me to something that I wanted us to discuss about the American League East more broadly, because I think it, besides Boston, who now have David Price until the end of time. Right. <laughs> and four years after he retires. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, it kind of feels like the rest of the teams in the American League East, as much as we always talk about the fact that our team doesn't have an ace and that's going to be a, a huge liability. It's hard to look around the American League East and find a pitching staff that could be described as stacked or even anything close to a solid bet. Everybody seems to be kind of engaging in this, I, I don't know what to call it exactly. I would call it being prudent for a change, except for Boston, actually. I mean, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm biased, so I'm predisposed to say that whatever Boston did is stupid. But, I mean, Boston is still throwing money at stuff, and it hasn't worked yeah. in the recent past. Uh, you know, David Price is David Price, so who can say? But it's I, they're, they're performing very much like everybody expects the Yankees to perform in the offseason, which is they're giving massive contracts to anyone who's willing to take one. I guess what so, I mean. I guess what I mean, though, is that it, it seems like besides Boston, no other team in the East put a significant premium on starting pitching this offseason and basically decided to look at it like, well, if the other guys in the division aren't going to break the bank to 
reform the entire starting rotation. We probably don't have to and might, in fact, be safe getting by on what we tried to get by on last year, more or less, which I think is an odd development. Well, well, also... Especially considering how much money people threw at bats. I mean, Orioles, the Jays is just going to be a a disgusting murderer's row with a full season of Tulowitzki. Like, yeah, it's gonna be pretty. That's <laughs> gonna be pretty nutty. I mean, but here's the thing. So I many mean, once, runs. Once the once the prices and grinkies of the world were taken, yeah, you know, there's a pretty steep drop off. I don't know about you know? that. I don't know about that. Zimmerman was a free agent. Cueto was a free agent. I mean, these are all. I well, I'll give you Zimmerman, but not Cueto. I <laughs> I think Cueto. I'm serious. I think Cueto is good. I I think. I think that people are, have just become a little leery of that sort of thing. Yeah. But even even yeah. your next tier down of unspectacular but very good starting pitchers, your Mike Leakes, your Wei-Yin Chens, found their big contracts outside of the division. They did. That's true. And I mean, you know, maybe that's, you know, I, I, I think that the, the dreaded P-word parody is, you know, starting to creep in to the discussion here. I mean, it's not just these giant teams like New York and Boston who can sign, you know, a, a fairly decent guy. I don't think anybody saw Granky signing with the Diamondbacks. That was, that <laughs> was, it continues to be very confusing. <laughs> right. No, I mean, that's, that's a real coup for them. I mean, you know, but then, yeah, there's, there's a Zimmerman is very, very good, but sort of less of a household name. Um, he's in there in sort of tier two. I think Cueto is sort of tier two and a half. I just feel like it, it starts to become more about guys who, who are not like, so unquestionably dominant that anybody would want them. It's sort of like you look at those guys and they're like, yeah, they're good, but is it worth it for us? Yeah. And, you know, I, I feel like it, maybe that's just a product of the free agent class this year, but... Uh, sure. But, uh, but the thing is, I mean, out. like, I'll grant you all of that, but when you say to me, you know, good, but not necessarily a world beater, there's a lot of names that come to mind that have, in recent years, found big contracts... In the American League East, A.J. Burnett, C.C. Yep. Sabathia. I mean, these are obviously both guys who signed with the Yankees. But um, this is it, – it's just striking to me that it seems like n- no one in the American League East is leaning into starting pitching as their principal strategy, despite the fact that you could make a very credible argument that, especially with regard to the Blue Jays, it was the missing piece – in whatever success they had or didn't have last year? The Blue Jays, I think, you know, it, it, it's weird to me that they didn't try harder. You know, there's also, you know, there's front office upheaval there. Um, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. As you guys know, rumors about the Blue Jays' front office have a way of affecting things. There is, there is certainly there is a storyline there that, that tends to overtake an offseason. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I don't know. It's interesting. But, you know, as far as the Yankees go, at least, which is all I can really speak to semi-intelligently, is the Yankees have actually not, as of this recording, to my knowledge, have not signed a single MLB free agent this year. That's true. So this is, this gets us to another question. Um, how do you feel about uh, Chapman being added to the uh, Batances-Miller triumvirate sort of playing the rubio to the Cruz and trump that you already had in new york hey, very wow. well done smith very <laughs> well done what are you that's, gonna are, <laughs> excuse me are you about to ethically defend or all this chapman because that's a slippery slope no sir. no 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 the other two guys maybe but not him. <laughs> andrew miller is unimpeachable i wish he's on my team and andrew miller seems like a little bit of a bastard 
No, I'm serious. This is a thing that it was alluded to by Buck Showalter during oh, really? the 2015 season that there were some personality issues with Andrew Miller. And I think it is somewhat striking that the Yankees gave him this giant contract during the 2014 offseason to be their closer and have now become the latest team to decide this guy may not actually be a critical piece for us. Well, hmm. I don't know about that. I mean, there was... Look, I'm first of all... So let's let's back up to the larger question of, particularly speaking, is it defensible to have Earl Chapman <laughs> on your baseball team? And the answer is no, it isn't, and I I can't and I won't defend it. Um, Fair enough. You know, I oh man, I, I had I had blocked out like twenty minutes for us to have this argument. <laughs> oh no, I mean, like, look, is it is it an extremely savvy baseball move in a vacuum? Sure. Only problem is <laughs> the only reason we could get him at all. Because right. it's possible he tried to choke and or shoot. <laughs> yeah. You have to have poison in your veins to make this extremely savvy baseball move. Right. Now, for one thing, there's a, there's a number of things about this that are very unfortunate as a Yankees fan. So first of all, I had a very tough time hearing other Yankees fans talk about forgiveness and Alex Rodriguez a year ago. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, well... It's going to be even worse with fucking Chapman, who actually yeah. did something to harm someone. Uh, so that's allegedly, allegedly, no, allegedly, I think, I think, we're allegedly, clear but on this. probably, <laughs> allegedly, but most likely. <laughs> I'm sure. Okay, I, I'm comfortable with that phraseology. So I'm not looking forward to other Yankees fans defending him all year long, and I'm also not looking forward to fans of every other team whom we play making Araldus chokes jokes every time he blows a save. Oh, my Ooh, God. Yeah. I haven't even considered that. That's oh, going to be awful. That's yeah. unpleasant. Yeah, which is unpleasant on a number of levels. As a Yankees fan, it will be unpleasant because it will mean we have lost a close baseball game. <laughs> <laughs> and on a human level, it will be bad because people are making jokes about a woman being assaulted. So that's right. Funny. <laughs> so that's, that's, you know? that's what the, uh, I believe that's what the, the literary types refer to as a double bind. <laughs> oh, boy. Or a shitstorm. <laughs> so, so that's a little less literary. Is the plan for Chapman to assume the closer duties and Miller to become what? Is, does he get <laughs> the eighth man, inning that... and then Batances gets bumped back to the seventh? Yeah, basically they're now seven, eight, nine, and Chapman is closing until further notice. Um, that that's the word from Joe Girardi. That seems to be what's going on. I mean, they look as far as giving Andrew Miller a huge contract the close goes, I mean, I think it's a perfectly good move. I think they had no way of knowing that Aroldis Chapman would become available at a discounted rate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it did It did have, like, best player available feel to it. And also, in some ways, like, un-Yankee-like in a couple of different ways. Because I feel like whatever else you would say about George Steinbrenner, and Lord knows I have. Um, yeah, and me too. I mean, yeah, yeah, but he he always had the sort of, like, you, you know, you can't <laughs> you can't have facial hair. You you have to have you know you kind of have to be squeaky clean, like there was sort of like a a, a Yankees way thing that. Well, this... I mean, yeah, except that go read ball four. I mean, like sure. you know, so sure, you know, Mickey Mantle was an alcoholic and a lunatic, and you know, all the rest right, of that. right, 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 right. Yeah. But but there was a publicness. There was like a public persona of the Yankees in the Steinbrenner era which this doesn't totally match to me. And it also doesn't match in the sort of like, we're going bargain shopping to get this player. It's both like, it's both like surprisingly, um, like we've been saying, savvy, and then also surprisingly like, it, it just feels like a move of a different organization. 
Well, you know, the thing about that is it's difficult to say, or it was difficult to say while Steinbrenner was still alive, even when he wasn't Compass Mentis anymore, and, or, you know, even for him. And, uh, <laughs> zing. Yeah, well, post-mortem zing. And, you know, there was, there was this also, you had this internal power struggle about sort of who was functionally going to inherit the team and be able to run it and stuff. And, you know, there's, it, it was really impossible to know who was driving the franchise, because nominally Brian Cashman has been the general manager this whole time, but you could really go back and say, well, depending on the year, he may not actually have had a lot to do with some of these moves. Mm. So, Teagawa, I'm looking at you. Um, if we remember him, and if you don't, you're very lucky. <laughs> <laughs> I believe you mean uh, to refer to him by his full title, Keagawa of Blessed Memory. <laughs> yeah, well, and you can't spell Igawa without... <laughs> Which is the noise name... I usually made when he took them out. <laughs> his last name does sound like the emotional response to his appearance in a game. <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly what happened to me constantly. It was it was really bad. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and and hilariously, he did not record very many of the plays that his first name sounds like. Ho <laughs> ho, very true. So, but anyway, this is this is a bit of a tangent. But you, <laughs> Us? as Never. sometimes happens on this show, yeah. how dare you? But um, the point is, Cashman. I think that this is all total speculation at this point. But Cashman has always been a pretty a pretty astute guy. He's he's always had pretty good acumen about finding players who fit well with the team, and you know, for 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 sort of that sort of strategic signing of guys. The problem is he hasn't always been able to do what he wants, and right. I think he has cottoned on, as most people have, that uh, the game is a lot less. Uh, you the, the the model of old Yankees can work to a point, but is really not what you need to be doing anymore. And in that vein, there is, and you alluded to this earlier, that the the logic may well be to attempt to create a Royals-esque sort of approach to winning games, which is solid, if unspectacular, offense, solid, if unspectacular, pitching staff, but... And then bolt, and then bolt them from... Yeah, from Mars. I mean, like, unbelievable. So, right, and right. in an American League where every other team is more or less constructed that way, giving yourself this one distinctly unfair advantage could well be enough. Yeah, it could. I mean, you know, they they did decently well last year. They did make it to a wild card game where they were clearly overmatched, but you know, they it could have been a very different story. So I feel like I feel like the margins the margins are tighter and any little thing you can do could potentially really help you out in a big spot. So so let's pivot uh, momentarily to the news that came out today about Greg Bird missing the entirety of the 2016 season. What? Yeah, which I heard from you. Thanks a lot. So. <laughs> I did uh, send you a text message immediately upon discovering yeah. the article because I knew you'd want to be aware. Um, I was driving, by the way. <laughs> so how, how devastating is that? I mean, what? Not very. I mean, it sucks. But here's the thing about Greg Bird. He's he's going to be great. He's going to hopefully be a part of the team in the future. Uh, I think he won a lot of people over by... So what people forget is, uh, actually, if you... This is something that I was thinking about the other day, because I was reminded of it by my baseball prospectus annual, which came in the mail. You know, in if you remember Mark Teixeira's season... He was actually quietly putting together MVP numbers, and then he got hurt. Mm. 
And I think the expectations for Greg Bird were so low because, you know, people were like, well, Teixeira is having this resurgence. He could be great. You know, oh, fuck, now he's now he's injured. I don't think anybody expected much from this kid. And then he came up and hit 11 home runs. So, you know, that's great. But as long as Teixeira is actually healthy, there's really nowhere to put him. And was the I mean, I think it uh, it has been easy as a non-Yankee fan to anecdotally kind of reach the conclusion that Greg Bird was kind of being groomed as a new signifier of what the new look Yankees are going to personify. Somebody who is solid but unspectacular, an important cog in a well-balanced machine, and that the team going forward was going to be looking to products of the organization like him to sustain them through this transitional period while they get rid of all these bad contracts. And that may well be true, but the fact is we still have another year of Teixeira's contract, so it's a moot point anyway. Right. I right. mean, and we never we never would have seen him if Teixeira hadn't been injured. Right. So, you know, he'll, he may well be that. We'll see. I mean, a lot can happen over the course of, you know, a baseball season, but, um, I mean, except for Greg Bird playing this year, obviously. But who knows what wackadoo moves get pulled over the, by the Yankees and everybody else over the course of the next year. But, you know, Teixeira will not be re-signed. That much is clear. So <laughs> <laughs> Maybe now the Orioles will finally be able to afford a Mark Teixeira contract. So uh, let's let's put aside for a second the fact that the Yankees seem to be adhering to a certain sort of new philosophy. What are the moves yeah. that you would like to have seen them make this offseason? And as you look at the remaining free agent pickings, some of whom are not so terrible, i.e. Dexter Fowler. Uh, what... Yeah, that's weird. That's weird. Nobody's picked him up. I mean, I feel, I have to say, I was actually not expecting the Yankees to do a whole lot. Sure. Because, you know, we're waiting for CeCe and Beltran and Teixeira and eventually A-Rod. And, you know, it, we're waiting for those things to run out. And then I think... It's a lot of lost well, money. It's a lot of money. And they may well go bananas once they have it to spend again. We'll see. I don't know. I feel like they're they're a little more prudent than they've been. I mean, they'll certainly go out and flex their muscle, but I don't know if they'll like try to buy up everyone on the market again. All right. Well, Ben Mastin, uh, a a strikingly sober take on the Yankees offseason from you, I would say. <laughs> well, and you know, because what I mean, what what is there to crow about? It's like it's not sexy, but it is. They are being patient. So and, there's that, and it may well be. As as you said, a savvy, savvy if morally reprehensible way to have some success in the American League East in 2016. Yeah, we'll find out. We'll find out. I mean, what are we, 16, 17 days till pitchers and catchers? Oh, God. Oh, Jesus. Oh, God. <laughs> Something like that. So, I mean, you know, just let that warm the cockles of your heart as, you know, the ethanol-fueled tide of the Iowa caucuses washes over us. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ben Mastin. Well, thank you as always for joining us, and we will speak with you again soon. Yeah, uh, next year when you do another episode. Yeah, yeah, all right. (laughs) Thank you, as always, Mr. Mastin, for your uh, intelligent and thoughtful analysis of the American League East. That is it for us this evening, ladies and gentlemen. We are about to go consume several burritos and teeth-gnashingly watch the Iowa caucus returns come in. We thank you, as always, for listening to the show. 
which you can find on the internet at bemorons.com, and which you can also find as a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network, which is right over there at baltimoresportsreport.com slash network. We're on Twitter. We are, at bemorons. Mm-hmm. We've actually even been using that on occasion recently. So sure have. We're... I just discovered TweetDeck, which has revolutionized my approach to Twitter. Also, uh, if we end up uh, live tweeting the Iowa caucus returns from Baltimoreans, it's because we're bad at Twitter. <laughs> Not because we're intending to make any political statements. <laughs> no, we, we like to save those for the podcast <laughs> where you're trapped <laughs> with them as opposed to Twitter where you can easily ignore them. Yep. The show featured music. That music was the theme song, which is written and performed by Marshall York. The interstitial music, which is by the band Weather Report. The song is called Birdland. And here on the outro, it's kicking my heart around by the Black Crows. Alan Smith's eyes are shut tight. He is meditating on a future that includes a Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren ticket. Sam. Yes, sir. What would you call Henry Arrudia's favorite presidential candidate? I, I don't know, and I'm terrified. Marco Rubio. Because he endorsed him. That's they're from the same place. Henry Arrudia endorsed Marco Rubio? Well, he said he liked him. Yet another reason to dislike Henry Arrudia. <laughs> At the end of this episode of Baltimoreans. Good night. Good night. Baltimoreans is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find, find more podcasts like this at baltimoresportsreport.com.